I will now be doing our scripture reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Returning. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flax of oil with them in their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us but he answered truly i say to you i do not know you may the lord add a blessing to the reading hearing and application of his word let's continue in worship amen well thank you pastor rick for doing our scripture reading this afternoon please keep your bibles turned to matthew chapter 25 well, happy Father's Day once again. Nothing is more important for us as fathers for us to lead our families into loving and following Jesus Christ. And fathers, we have a unique responsibility not just to prepare ourselves for the return of Jesus Christ, but our families, our wives, our children. And before I pray, I want us to just take a moment to give a shout out to our intern, Gabby Mitchell. One of the assignments that she had was typing up quotes from this book called The Parable of the Ten Virgins by Thomas Shepard. I started this book last year in preparation for this sermon this afternoon, and I'll be using several of those quotes today. So thank you, Gabby. Thank you for serving Christ and his church. Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing thing that we can call you that that as the God of this universe, as the creator of all things, as the sustainer and governor and ruler and judge over all, that we can call you Father because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would pour out your Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, a heart to understand, and a heart that would respond by faith to the words of the Lord Jesus that we hear this afternoon. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, over 10 years ago, Teresa and I were taking a trip to see Teresa's extended family. The purpose of this trip was to celebrate Teresa's grandma's 90th birthday. Yes, she was turning 90. We were living in Texas at the time, so we went to the airport, got our tickets, checked in our bags, went through security screening. We were in the middle of dating at that time, and we couldn't wait to spend the whole weekend together and for me to get to know her family better, her aunts and uncles, her cousins. And we were having the time of our lives. 
when you love someone, it doesn't matter if love being with someone, it doesn't matter if you are at a resort or at the departure gate of an airport. You're just happy, happy to be with that person. We were so happy that we lost track of time. Uh, we lost awareness of what was going on around us. And at one point we thought, shouldn't we be getting on a plane by now? And we looked at the time and realized that our plane had taken off half an hour ago. It was weird because we were waiting at the gate for our flight. And then we realized something. Right when we arrived at the gate, we forgot to check the gate number. We were waiting at the wrong gate. We thought we were at the right gate. But instead, we were at the wrong gate, and so we completely missed our flight. When, you know, but thankfully, they were able to book us on another flight. But because we had forgotten something important, we missed our flight. Uh, we've all been there. We've all been there. Maybe you're on your way to the airport and you realize, I forgot my ID. Or maybe you've arrived at your final destination and you realize, I forgot my luggage. Or I forgot my clothes. I forgot that one thing I was supposed to bring on this trip. And then there's that sinking feeling, that feeling of panic and alarm when your mind is like racing 50 laps trying to think about what to do next. Well, today in, in this parable, we're going to see five foolish virgins forgot something critically important. And it wasn't the gate number for their flight. It wasn't their ID. It wasn't their clothes. It was something so important it would keep them from a wedding celebration. Something so important it would exclude them from the kingdom of heaven. Today in this parable of the ten virgins, Jesus gives us a warning a warning to each one of us who claim to know him, claim to call him Lord, claim to follow him. And the warning is that more important than checking your gate number, checking to make sure you have your ID, checking is this, checking to make sure you're prepared for eternal life. Your preparation now is the evidence that you'll be ready later. Your preparation now is the evidence that you'll be ready later. This is part two of a message started two weeks ago when I talked about the uncertain timing of Christ's return. Jesus Christ doesn't tell us the exact time of his return, doesn't tell us the day or the hour because he wants us to be ready at all times. Jesus presents that teaching that I presented last time, that teaching in the form of a sandwich. We see the first slice of bread is the days of Noah. The second part, the middle of the sandwich, is while people are going about their everyday lives, their everyday activities, we see a sudden and permanent separation. And that second slice of bread is the thief in the middle of the night. And then Jesus closes out that section by asking the question, who then is the faithful and wise servant? So the, it's an open-ended question for each one of us to consider. Are you, am I, that faithful servant? Are you ready for his return? Today I'm going to build on these ideas as we look at the next parable in that sequence, the parable of the ten virgins, a parable that I'm going to split into three separate sections, three separate chapters. Chapter 1, Anticipation, Chapter 2, Arrival, and Chapter 3, Aftermath. So three chapters, Anticipation, Arrival, and Aftermath. So let's begin with Chapter 1, Anticipation. Anticipation. So let's look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Please follow along. 
Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Weddings today seem a whole lot simpler or seem a lot different than what Jesus presents here. Today, you have a bride and a groom, a ceremony, a reception, and then you go home. Maybe the whole thing lasts a couple hours. But that's not what we see here. You might be wondering, what are these virgins doing? Why do they need lamps? And why is the bridegroom delayed? This doesn't seem like a typical wedding that we might be used to. Well, there are a couple things you need to know about a wedding in first century Palestine. Weddings during those times were held in the evenings, and lights were a critical part of the celebration. The Greek word translated as lamps is probably better translated as torches. Torches. So a slightly better translation might be, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their torches and went to meet the bridegroom. These torches were probably wooden sticks wrapped with oil-soaked rags. These oil-soaked rags were the wick for the torch, and these rags would burn about 15 minutes before you'd have to re-soak them in oil and fuel and light them again. So these ten virgins, five of whom are wise, five are foolish, are anticipating. They are anticipating the groom's arrival. For the kids watching out there who maybe have never been to a wedding, the bride is the lady who becomes the wife after the wedding. And the groom is the man who becomes the husband. So you have the bride, the lady, and then the groom, the man, who are joined together together in a wedding ceremony. Now, Scripture doesn't give us an exact order of ceremony for a wedding like this, but historians have done their best to try to piece things together. So these ten virgins are waiting with anticipation, and they likely belong to the bridal party. And the bride and the groom and their wedding parties would meet together in the middle of the night in a particular place, and when they met, the wedding would happen. And then the whole group, the bride, the groom, and the whole party would lead a procession, a procession, a parade to the bridegroom's home for a wedding feast. Torches would light the way for this evening procession. These torches would be a beautiful display of light in the darkness. And wedding celebrations back then wouldn't last just a few hours. They would last days, maybe even a week. Weddings were a big deal in that culture, a much bigger deal than in our culture. Before we go further in this parable, I want us to make sure we fully appreciate what we're seeing in this parable. If you don't appreciate the significance of the marriage metaphor, you're you're not going to appreciate the points Jesus is making here. So let's take a few minutes now to look at the biblical background for this marriage metaphor, the marriage metaphor. Well, humans have always enjoyed weddings and marriages since the beginning of creation when God brought Adam to Eve, uh, when God brought Eve to Adam in Genesis chapter 2. But as redemptive history unfolds, beginning with the fall of humanity into sin, marriage, God reveals marriage as a metaphor a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people, the marriage metaphor. For the kids out there, you might be wondering, what is a metaphor? A metaphor helps us to understand something better. Uh, Jesus uses metaphors all the time. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Well, Jesus isn't actually bread. He isn't actually water. He's 
a human being, but Jesus is like bread. He is like water. You need these things to live. Without bread, without food, without water, you die. In the same way, you need Jesus to live. Without Jesus, we die in our sins. So God presents his relationship through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. He presents his relationship with his people as a marriage, as a wedding celebration. God is the faithful husband who loves his bride, who is Israel, and then later on the church. Matthew assumes that his Jewish audience would have picked up on these wedding and marriage references and immediately thought of key Old Testament passages such as this, Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is just fascinating. This is something we need to talk about more, church, that the Lord of hosts, the God of this universe, the creator, the maker, the creator, is the husband for his people. He is the husband for his people. And we need to understand this Old Testament marriage metaphor well in order to fully appreciate what Jesus is talking about in this parable. So let's again look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. This is God speaking. When I passed by you again and saw you, this is God speaking to his people, Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. That's what God says to his people. You became mine. You are mine. This marital joy, marital intimacy and oneness, the marital covenant is a pointer. It's a picture of the joy, intimacy, and oneness between God and his people. Paul describes our union with Christ as marital intimacy. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is really about Christ and the church. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride of Christ. The relationship we have is a marriage. This one flesh union we have with you know, in a marriage between a husband and wife, the spiritual, emotional, and physical union is a picture, a picture of that union between Christ and the church. And then in the book of Revelation, we see the second coming of Christ as a marriage, as a wedding celebration. Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready, and that means preparations are needed. If you've ever had to plan a wedding, you know that the process takes weeks, maybe months, and sometimes years. A wedding just doesn't happen. You have to think of all these different questions, like how many people are going to be there? What's the guest list? How big of a venue do you need for the ceremony, for the reception? How about food and flowers and dresses and attendance? And the list goes on and on and on. Of course, during COVID-19, that list and those questions are probably a whole lot simpler. But bottom line is that preparations are needed. You need to invest time and money. And if you're a royal, 
expect to pay lots of time and money. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle supposedly spent $46 million, $46 million on their royal wedding. Lots of money, lots of food, lots of decorations. Supposedly, most of that was spent on security alone, including snipers, undercover police, military equipment, and security drones. But preparation is essential. Imagine if you wanted to plan a wedding, but you didn't have someone to officiate. You didn't have a guest list. You didn't have a venue reserved. You didn't have food or drink. You wouldn't have a wedding. You wouldn't have a celebration. You wouldn't have a reception. No preparation means no wedding. So let's get back to the story, the parable of the ten virgins and chapter one, anticipation, this anticipation of the bridegroom. Let's pick things up with verse two through five of chapter 25. Verses two through five. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. During chapter 1, there's only one set of virgins. And outwardly, this one set of virgins, they all appear to be the same. But the narrator, Jesus, here inserts some critical details to tell us and explain to us that they're not all the same. The wise brought flasks or jars of oil for their torches. The foolish brought no oil. There was no preparation. They didn't prepare for the wedding. It's foolish not to bring oil because without oil, there would be no fuel to keep their torches lit. Commentator R.T. France puts it, puts it this way. A torch without a jar of oil was as useless as a flashlight without a battery. A torch without oil was as useless as a flashlight without batteries. Or you might add, uh, a car without gas. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to get you anywhere. The foolish virgins failed to prepare. They should have known better. They had one job, and that was to bring their light, to bring their torches to accompany the groom into the wedding celebration. They had just one job. It's like going to the gas station and completely forgetting to get gas. Now, why did these five virgins, why didn't they bring any oil? Did they forget? Did did they think they didn't need any? We're given a clue in this last verse in chapter 1, in in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, Jesus doesn't make any comment about these sleeping virgins. That's not a main point. But the important clue is that there is a delay, a delay in the bridegroom's arrival. The bridegroom takes longer to, to arrive than anticipated. He's held up for some reason. And we, and we don't know why. It's not important. But the bridegroom doesn't come when the virgins expect him to come. And it's that delay that separates the wise from the foolish. If the bridegroom had come right away, there wouldn't have been any need for any oil. Fifteen minutes might have been enough for them to get through the procession into the celebration. Now, how many of us wish that the moment we came to faith in Christ, Christ would have just taken us up into heaven? We wouldn't have to wait. We wouldn't have to anticipate Christ's return. We wouldn't have to make preparations now. The Christian life would be so much easier. But that's not how God planned it. 
God chooses, God ordains a time of waiting, a time of anticipation, a time of preparation. He puts the delay in there for a reason. The delay is there to test us. That time, that delay reveals who is a true disciple and who is a fake, who is a pretender. As one commentator points out, the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom twice. They first go to wait for him, and second, they go with him to the wedding banquet. And it's the same with us. First, we go to Christ in this life, and second, we go to Christ when we leave this life and enter into the next one. The second going to Christ demonstrates whether the first going was genuine. That second going to Christ, when he returns, that second going to Christ demonstrates whether that first going to Christ was genuine. Your preparation now is the evidence that you'll be ready later. And we won't know until then, until that great and final day, who is a true disciple and who is a fake. And Jesus, in this parable, is building on what he has already taught in places like the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. It's only later on that we see the true condition of the heart. Some who receive the gospel are like shallow soil and they have no root. When the sun comes, when the sun comes out, when things get hard, when God disappoints us, faith withers for some. Others who receive the gospel are like the soil full of weeds, and their faith is choked out. Their faith is choked out by the cares of the world, love of money, and the desire for other things. A shallow commitment to Christ, a shallow faith, those things often aren't visible until later. You see, outwardly, in this chapter, during this time of anticipation, outwardly, all ten virgins appear to be the same. They all bring their torches. They all go out to wait for the bridegroom. They all became drowsy and slept. So that's chapter one, anticipation. Chapter two of this parable, arrival. Arrival. Let's look at verses six, six through 10 of chapter 25. Six through 10. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. After a long wait, after the virgins have fallen asleep, the arrival happens, the arrival of the bridegroom. At midnight, there's a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. As we saw in our last message, that arrival is sudden. There's only a moment for the virgins to trim their lamps and uh, trim their torches. They probably just have a moment to, to dip their torches in oil and relight them. But only five of them have oil. Five of them don't. And for the five without any oil, there's no way for them to relight their torches. So those five without any oil, those five foolish virgins, they ask the wise, give us some of your oil for our torches are gone out. 
these foolish virgins, they're probably looking at their lifeless torches and they realize at that moment that they need fuel, they need oil. Without oil for their torches, there's no light for the wedding procession. So they ask the wise for some of their oil. How do the wise answer? They say, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, you might be thinking, was this selfish? I mean, couldn't the wise have just given some of their oil to the foolish? Well, it wasn't a matter of selfishness or sharing because it's not something that can be shared. Oil can't be transferred. True faith in Christ can't be transferred. Let me repeat that. True faith in Christ can't be transferred to somebody else. You can't have true faith in Christ for your child or your parent or your spouse or your friend. Faith is non-transferable. And I do want us to, at this moment, remember that grace is free. God's salvation is free. You can't buy your salvation. It is by grace we are saved through faith. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't merit it, you don't deserve it, but salvation has a cost. It has a cost. Remember the parable of the hidden treasure or the parable of the pearl of great price, Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. When the merchant saw that pearl, that pearl of great value, that pearl of great price, he sold everything so that he could have that pearl. And the cost for us, the cost is that we have to give up everything that we can have Christ so that we can have Christ. And when you see Christ in all of his perfection, all of his beauty, in his perfect life, for you, in his death on the cross for your sins, in his resurrection for your justification, and in his second coming for your salvation. When you see Christ in that way, you must have him. You need him. You must have him. A must that motivates you to give up everything so that you can have him. So that you can have him. You must have him. But at this point in the parable, at the arrival of the bridegroom, there's no time. There's no time. There's, it's too late to purchase the pearl of great price. It's too late to prepare. But the five of them still need oil, so they attempt to get some oil at the last minute. They leave the other five and, and try to go to the dealers to buy some oil for themselves. Commentator R.T. France reminds us that readiness doesn't come from last-minute preparation, but from long-term provision. Readiness doesn't come from last-minute preparation, but from long-term provision. Salvation is by grace alone, but that grace works. That grace works itself out day by day. Those who are relying on last-minute preparation, they are unfit and unready to meet the bridegroom. Your preparation now is the evidence that you'll be ready later. Let's look once more at verse 10, Matthew chapter 25, verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. At his arrival, at the bridegroom's arrival, the foolish virgins missed him. They missed the wedding. 
They missed the procession of light. They missed the banquet, the feast, the celebration. They missed all of it. Only those who were ready accompanied the bridegroom into the marriage and the feast. And then the door was shut. Earlier, we looked at how similar those wise and foolish virgins were, but there's one critical difference, a life and death difference. One group was prepared and the other group wasn't. And there's no way to avoid the uncomfortable reality of being shut out. There will be many who will be shut out of the kingdom of heaven and condemned to hell. There's two kinds of people who end up in hell. Number one, those who directly reject Christ. They directly reject him. They might be religious people like the Pharisees. They might be pagans like Pilate or Herod. But Jesus isn't talking about this group. He isn't talking about those who directly reject him, the atheists out there. He's talking about the second group of people. The second group, those who indirectly reject Christ. Those who indirectly reject Christ. They might confess Christ with their lips, but then they deny him with their actions. They think they're following Christ. They think they're ready. They think they're going to heaven, but none of those things are true. It's a scary thought. It's a sobering thought that on the day of judgment, on that final great day when Christ returns, many people will think they have a relationship with him. Many people will think they're going to heaven, but they don't. They don't. And all throughout the Bible, we see example after example of those who seemed to be saved, those who seemed to follow after Christ, but they weren't. Judas looked like a genuine disciple, but he wasn't. Demas looked like a faithful co-worker of Paul, but being in love with this present world, he deserted Paul. And before the arrival of the bridegroom, the wise and the foolish virgins looked so similar and sometimes counterfeits are so hard to tell apart. They can be mistaken for the real deal. But God knows the heart. God knows those who are truly His. And this passage in Hebrews describes how close someone can get to being saved, how close they can get to the kingdom of heaven, into the marriage feast, but not actually enter. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. We're talking about professing Christians here. They've once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've had some experience, some familiarity with the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the glories of heaven, but ultimately they fall short. The arrival caught them unprepared. Church, if your preparation, if our preparation now is the evidence of our readiness later, I want to now go into three areas of essential preparation for the true disciple of Christ. If you're not taking notes, you might want to consider taking notes during this section because we'll, we'll want to think about these three different areas. We'll want to examine our hearts, examine our ways, and repent if we've fallen short. So number one, the first essential area of preparation. Number one, devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ. So many professing Christians are devoted to so many different things. So many want Christ. 
and the world. They want Christ and riches and financial security. They want Christ and health, Christ and sexual pleasure. But there is no and in true devotion. Thomas Shepard points out, a hypocrite never makes Christ his greatest treasure, but is a double-minded man. A double-minded man wants it both ways, Christ and something. Thomas Shepard says, when you can draw out buckets of love and pour it upon other things, but scarce fetch out a drop for Christ, I tell you, no, you are yet unsafe and unready for him. Every one of us draws out buckets of love for something, for something, but for what? For Christ? For his church? For the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or for something else? For entertainment? For football? For fame? For finances? For other things? And these things, other things aren't necessarily bad things, but they become deadly when they draw your heart away from God. Thomas Shepard so the Lord is worthy of all our love, our lives, our souls, though we had a thousand of them. And will a man not part with his lust for him? I tell you, the Lord takes himself slighted, despised, and loathed. If not worth all a man's love, he is worth nothing. Does the Lord have all your love, all your life, all your soul? Are you loyal to Christ alone? Or are you guilty of committing spiritual adultery? Are you guilty of two-timing it with Christ? Is there some lust, some part of yourself, some part of this world that you would rather hold on to? If Christ doesn't have all your love, does he really have any of it? So that's the first area of preparation, our devotion to Christ, our complete and total devotion to Christ. In church, we need to guard our love and devotion to Christ because other loves can easily and so quickly sneak in. Our second area of preparation is related to this. It's devotion to holiness. Devotion to holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 exhorts us, commands us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Church, Holiness is not an option. We are commanded by the Lord Jesus himself to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do we see the infinite value in the blood of Christ, infinite value in his grace, or do we cheapen the blood of Christ by prizing our sin, by prizing ourselves above Christ? Do we value and prize Christ so much that we must pursue holiness, that holiness is non-negotiable for us. How we treat sin and how we value the love of Christ is the test. Thomas Shepard, but when you are empty and poor and cast down and make an infinite matter of a small sin and set a high price on love, now you are prepared. Now you are prepared. Do you see his logic? When you see yourself as empty and poor and cast down, and when you make an infinite matter, an infinite matter of a small sin, and when you can set a high price on the love of Christ, now you are ready. But so many professing Christians do the reverse. 
They care little about sin. And they set a, a low price on the love of Christ, on his blood, on his death. They don't prize the infinite worth of Christ. And so they don't care about holiness. So number one, devotion to Christ. And number two, devotion to holiness. The third area of essential preparation is devotion to watchfulness. A devotion to watchfulness. Thomas Shepard, do you think these are ready for Christ whose glorious appearing is never or seldom or the least thing in their thoughts? The obvious answer is no. If the return of Christ is never or seldom or the least thing in your thoughts, then you are not ready. How often do we think about the glorious appearing of Christ? Some professing Christians never think about it or seldom think about it or it's the least thing in their thoughts. And for so many, for so many professing Christians out there, they live as if the future return of Christ is unimportant. They don't necessarily say that, but they just live that way. Thomas Shepard, you live without God and walk without God and pray without God, but there is a day approaching that you shall appear before the Lord Jesus. You shall wish then, oh, that I lived differently. Oh, do that now. Oh, do that now. How would you live differently if you knew Christ was returning tonight? If he was returning tomorrow or next week? How would that knowledge of the certain return of Christ tomorrow or next week or even the next day, how would that knowledge affect your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your children or your boss? How would that affect the way you treat people of different races, people of different ethnicities? How would that affect your use of electronic devices, your use of your time and money? How would that affect your prayer life? If you would live differently, then do that now. Make those changes now. Live differently now. As I mentioned last time, live each day as if it could be your last because one day it will be. Live each day as if it could be your last because one day it will be. So we've seen the first chapter, anticipation. The second chapter, arrival. Now we enter into the third and final chapter of this parable, the aftermath. The aftermath. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. These five foolish virgins have returned, and now they want to be let in to the wedding feast. They want to join the celebration. They think they should be let in, and they call out, Lord, Lord, open to us. But tragically, it's too late. The door was shut. When the door to Noah's ark was shut and the rain began to fall, it was too late for everybody else on earth to enter the ark. And it's the same with these five foolish virgins. The day of salvation, the day of preparation is over. The day of judgment has begun. 
Once again, Jesus here builds upon an earlier warning given to us in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many, including those five foolish virgins, will say, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, open to us. Many on that day will think that they are saved. They think they know the Lord. They think they have a relationship with Jesus. They think they're forgiven and entering into eternal life, but they're not. On that day, many will fall short of the kingdom of heaven because they fell short in devotion to Christ, devotion to holiness, and devotion to watchfulness. Thomas Shepard once again that to make sure of life eternal is the one necessary business in this world, and without which all our time here is worse than lost. It's worse than lost. In the aftermath, it's too late to make sure of life eternal. It's too late to make sure of that one necessary business. It's too late to enter the wedding banquet. Too late because the door is shut and Jesus says, I do not know you. And there's a warning here, obviously, for each one of us, each one of us who would call Jesus Lord, who profess faith in Christ. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Church, we need to make sure we don't fall into the trap and think, well, that can't happen to us. That can't happen to me. The foolish virgins thought they were okay. They never thought about their preparation, and they never thought it would come back to bite them. If you think it could never happen to me, then you are most in danger. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And Jesus warns us. He warns us because we need to be warned, because there's eternal danger, because our eternal soul is at stake here. If there was no danger there would be no need for a warning. And we can see that this word of warning, if we can hear it, if we can accept it, if we can take it to heart, this word of warning is actually a word of grace for God's people. It's a word of grace if we can hear it and respond by faith. Jesus tells us these things now for the purpose that we can better prepare ourselves for later. Your preparation now is the evidence that you will be ready later. Let's pray. Father, it is only by your grace, the grace of Christ, the grace given to us by your Holy Spirit, that we will be ready. We won't be ready on our own. We can't be. So I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts, that you would fill our lives with your spirit, that you would fill our flasks with oil so that we will be ready at the arrival of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.